This is Passing Notes from the History of Education Society. In the fourth and final episode to accompany the May special edition of the History of Education Journal, Michael Donnay speaks to Roland Vittier about his article, Relocating Education in the History of Science and Technology. I'll hand you back to Michael for the podcast. Welcome, Roland. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Michael. So I think maybe to begin, can you just summarize briefly the sort of main focus of your article and maybe talk a little bit about the current state of history of science and history of technology historiography? Uh, Okay. Uh, The reason why I wrote this paper, this paper actually goes back to a talk that I was invited to in Brazil, actually uh, at the museum for uh, the history of uh, astronomy and sciences in Rio de Janeiro. And I was asked to talk about uh, the history of education and its relationship to the history of science. And also specifically, they were collecting instruments from uh, the history of uh, education from various uh, institutions in uh, uh, Brazil. And uh, what I felt here was that there was a specific gap between the history of science and the history of education and even even the people I was talking to that saw kind of the history of education separate from the history of science and I feel actually very strongly about that I've been throughout my career as a historian of science being quite interested in education and uh, I think that education or specifically science, science and technology education, is an integral part of the history of science and the history of technology. So this article, one of, uh, one of the, the aims of this article was really to put uh, the history of science and technology education in the center of the history of science. And even though there have been several calls here to do that, right? Like, and some people are, are, are saying, oh, this probably hasn't really been done in the past, but now we have, we have gotten there. I, I still think that there is not really a substantial push into uh, looking at uh, specifically uh, formal education in history of science and technology. So if you see history of science, uh, specifically history of science in recent years, there has been uh, a, a call for uh, increasing or like say broadening the scope of history of science towards uh, the public. So there's been a lot of attention towards uh, 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 science in the zoo, science in the pub, for example, uh, also um, amateur societies, for example, amateur botany and all this. But still, I mean, the most important part here I really see is if you, if you talk about uh, the scientific community and the public is really schooling, right? Like an education. So uh, I really felt uh, the need to put to put education really in the center, right? Like if we talk about the, the intersection or the interplay between science and society, I feel that education is a central aspect of that. And that has to be in the center of for uh, uh, for the history of science and technology, uh, and obviously there is some more uh, some other aspects which we can probably pick up uh, during our conversation. Uh, one of them, specifically, since I prepared this paper for for a conference at a museum, I'm I'm very much interested in material culture of science and material culture of science and technology, uh, and uh, that is also very important and also very central uh, if you think about education, right? Like uh, obviously we can think about textbooks, but uh, specifically science and technology education is uh, much more than about textbooks. And even if you talk about textbooks, uh, we really have to look into practices. 
So practices are obviously very important, both in relation to textbooks, but also in relation to the material culture of uh, science education. Um, one uh, one very important aspect which I'm uh, which uh, which I'm also very very concerned about is there is this traditionally, if historians of science uh, have been thinking about education, they have mainly been looking at education in terms of the reproduction of the scientific community. So if you read, for example, Thomas Kuhn, but also in older older works like Ludwig Fleck, education plays an important role in the reproduction of the scientific community. But what we forget, if we if we focus really on the science uh, the scientific community, is that uh, almost all science teaching in the educational sector is actually not about the reproduction of the scientific community, but it's really about teaching science to people who are not becoming scientists themselves. So why why are we doing this? The question certainly is why are we doing this, and what does this do to society? Right, like that we basically think that everybody needs to be taught science, everybody needs to know something in science, and that uh, science is uh, is is a part for everybody in the school curriculum, for example. Yeah, and finally, also me having moved uh, away from. Uh, from Europe, uh, having moved to India and uh, teaching history of science and technology in India, you still see how um, Eurocentric our understanding of uh, history of science and technology education really is. And obviously, there's a large scope of uh, um, understanding uh, 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 science and technology education, both in its local context all over the world, but also looking at this in a much more global uh, understanding of history of science and technology and the role that education plays in uh, history of science. Yeah. Well, I think you've planted a lot of really great seeds there, and I'm sure we're going to pick up a couple of them in the conversation. Before we jump too deeply into the calls for how you'd like to see the historiography shift, I was wondering if there are any examples um, sort of of current works or scholarship that you think does a good job of connecting the history of science with the history of education, um, if people would sort of be looking for examples of how this is being done well at the moment. Um, what is actually interesting is uh, we, we always think, okay, this is kind of like something that's going to happen. There's actually some old examples. We can go back to the 70s, uh, 1970s and 1980s already when people, uh, when historians of science have picked up on the history of education. I, I would like to point out, for example, Catherine Olesko's work on 19th century physics teaching, both in Germany, both on the school and on the university level, and also some of her historiographical work and her calls. Uh, then also Deborah Warner at the at the Smithsonian Institution, for example, she has published some uh, very interesting articles on specifically on scientific instruments and the material culture of science and science education and the and the very important role that uh, education really uh, plays in the history of uh, science. Sally Kolstad's work, that would be also specifically picking up on school science, because as I said, a lot of uh, a lot of the scholars, they really don't pick up on school science. The importance, uh, her call, uh, that she already she already called for this in the 80s. Andrew Warwick's Masters of Theory certainly is a very interesting book uh, in that in that context. So I, I would say the, the calls have been made already uh, many, many years ago. And what actually I don't really see, even though, you have, for example, in James Secord's uh, Knowledge in Transit, you have a call for 
looking really at the role of education for, uh, you can say, the circulation of science and technology. I still think, uh, I wouldn't say that there is anything specific of more recent uh, historiography in science and technology that has uh, focused more on schools. Well, like I, I would like to say something about that as well. Is As I said, there have been a lot of works on, on the history of science and the public and uh, on these kind of new places, uh, but still schools are not really very sexy, I would say, right? Like there is really, there's really this, uh, this, this problem that school pedagogy and teaching really doesn't have a high status among academics or in, in universities, right? And, uh, um, and uh, historians of ped pedagogy have also um, pointed this out, right? Like that there is actually, um, even though everybody would say school, obviously uh, school is very important, right? Like, but uh, there, is a, there is a certain reluctance to engage with, right? Like, and people don't find it kind of very exciting, even though I would say it's, it's tremendously important to understand the development, uh, the spread, the circulation of uh, science and technology. And I think for this podcast audience, you would not have to convince them too hard that school is really important. <laughs> uh. Yes, yes, yes. But I, I would say among historians of science and technology and academics in general, um, there is also, they don't, it's still, right? Like there is, uh, there is a, a reluctance really to engage with it because uh, also if it, they think about their careers, for example, the kind of books they're going to write, like if they're going to write about schools, it's probably not going to, take them that far, right? Like that thinking about, okay, what what is uh, my endeavor? What is my research in the history of science about? That there's still 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 a reluctance to engage too much with formal, formal education and make history of science and technology, uh, or specifically history of science uh, as a history of research. Well, great. Well, I think that's a really good lead into the specific calls for change that you're making in your article. Um, and I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't read it, so we won't go through all four of them now. But would love to start with the one that you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, which is this focus on material culture. Um, and was wondering if you could elaborate a bit on that call to place material culture at the center of the history of science and technology education. And then also for historians who might not be so familiar at working with material culture, uh, what sort of different requirements are there when you're working with material culture as opposed to texts like textbooks, for example? Yeah, I mean, material culture has been very much at the center, even though it was not called material culture back then. Obviously, it's one of the buzzwords that has really come up in in uh, in recent decades. Uh, so when I really started out as a historian of science, my background is actually in physics. So when I moved to uh, to the history of science, actually at the University of Oldenburg in a group that was dealing with teacher education. So it was, it's kind of very interesting, even though I don't really come from teacher education myself, that uh, the work at the at the University of Oldenburg with uh, Fall Gries, who is retired now, um, we did uh, what we called replication or redoing historical experiments in the laboratory. So my engagement with history of science really started very much with an engagement with objects with instruments, right? Like using instruments in, in my in my own work in uh, with history of science. So when you look at, uh, uh, let's say, uh, museums, right? Like, and if you look at museum collections, historical collections of uh, the big museums, but also university museums, smaller museums, many of them actually have a background from education, from teaching, right? Like, and if you walk around in 
in schools and in colleges, right? Like you find all these uh, all these collections. And there can be scientific instruments, but obviously that's not limited to scientific instruments at all, right? Like there is, if you have biology, for example, right? Like you have stuffed animals, you have a herbarium uh, in chemistry, uh, you, you do chemical experiments. So uh, even though a lot of the science education actually happens uh, with, in, uh, in engaging with textbooks, a lot of it also happens in laboratories, right? Like a lot of it happens in demonstrations by the teachers, right? Like, and also if you go through histories, right? Like, uh, for example, in science teaching, demonstration lectures have been very, very central. And also if you, if you talk to people, what do you actually remember from your science teaching? A lot of times these things come up, right? Like, and not the textbook. So there have been, there have been some studies, or actually there have been quite a few studies on history of education through textbooks, right? Like, and then people have been looking at the historical textbooks and I also see why methodologically this is, uh, uh, this is chosen, this pass is chosen, right? Like, because of a lot of the other questions, you really have a hard time to answer, right? Like, how have things been used? But I'm helpful, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical to like rely on too much on textbooks if you think about a science education because you really have to understand how have these textbooks actually been used in science education right like where these actually central to science and technology and then you find out a lot of times you really have to go into the practice right like how how has this uh, actually happened so obviously if you if you coming back to your question how have objects been used right it's uh, it's really a combination of different kind of sources right it's uh, you can you can look at the uh, the objects and you can engage with the objects but it's also very useful to engage with objects in connection with textbooks for example right like and with other kinds of uh, um, sources with interviews uh, obviously it depends on which uh, time period we are looking at but I find it uh, I find it specifically fruitful to use different kinds of methodologies and different kinds of sources complementary right so having having e either interviewing people or um, looking at um, counts of teaching together with textbooks together with the instruments yeah, I mean, having grown up in a house with scientists, the only thing I remember from sort of learning about science when I'm young was playing with instruments, doing experiments, retained almost nothing of the sort of factual knowledge I was supposed to take away from that. Um, well then, so moving on to this, to the other call you make, um, which is this call to provincialize Europe to expand beyond sort of a North American and European history of science education and looking at other places in the world. I was wondering if you could elaborate more on that um, and maybe talk a little bit about how a transnational perspective nuances or enhances our understanding of these histories. This has been uh, broadening our understanding of science and technology or science technology and society beyond the uh, we want europe and north america has very much been has been very much at the center of uh, uh, history of science and technology in recent uh, decades uh, but i really see that education again has not really uh, even though education has been central to that right like schooling uh, and changes in schooling and training has been central to that uh, uh, to that endeavor it has not been 
central to our histories or to our historiography. And even though a lot of it has been written about, so I can can mainly talk about India, right? Like where you actually have quite a few histories on uh, specifically on technical education and uh, also the social context, specifically in India, the caste context, for example, and uh, and binaries in education because of the caste context, like between like the manual and the and the theoretical, right? Like the the manual and the hand and uh, and the brain, for example. These are not historians of science and technology, right? Like. Uh, they usually come from uh, from general history or from other backgrounds. So, uh, like for example, my own engagement with uh, a post-colonial uh, history of science and technology, and specifically, uh, I've been looking at uh, the history of my own institution, IIT Madras, which uh, was uh, set up as an Indo-German collaboration in the post-independence uh, period. You see that, for example, a lot of these uh, engagements, right? Like we're actually connected to uh, science teaching and also to technical training, right? And that there was a lot of engagement and a lot of spread through these kind of activities, but still uh, they're not very central. I mean, if you look at the kind of work of post-colonial uh, science and uh, and technology, uh, teaching and training is again not necessarily central, even even though if you look into the different kind of projects. They usually always had components of uh, teaching and training, and and one of the, uh, the 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 issues that I find uh, specifically important is to look at uh, to overcome certain certain binaries which we also have in our historiographies of uh, what has been called uh, the West and the non-West or the global North and the global South, right? Like specifically overcoming binaries between as I said, the hand and the mind, uh, the quote-unquote the West and the non-West, uh, the traditional and the modern, right? Like, and rather see, okay, if there are uh, ruptures, we have to talk about the ruptures, but we also have to talk about the continuity. So what does actually, what happens actually to knowledge when it moves, right? Like, and how it's getting transformed comes into different kind of contexts, right? So there's also this kind of understanding, for example, that quote-unquote Western systems of education have been uh, uh, moved to uh, places like India, right? Like, but then if you really look at uh, science and technology education in India, it's not. Uh, even though there has been uh, obviously these kind of models that have been transferred there, but uh, a place like uh, the Indian Institute of Technology is not a German Institute of Technology. It's not a German technical university, right? So what has actually happened to these institutions and to the the kind of knowledge and these kind of regimes that have been that have come to India, right? Like they have mixed and mingled with uh, local practices and obviously also interacted with the social structure in the places where they came, right? Like so, uh, I think there is a lot to be learned there, right? In terms of uh, how how knowledge really travels, right? Like and how knowledge really transforms both uh, scientific and technological knowledge. Sort of leaving the article specifically, but staying a bit with something you mentioned earlier with your background in physics, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this idea of whether historians of science need to have trained as scientists. And the reason I'm sort of interested in it is I was once at a conference with a bunch of military historians, and one of them was arguing that to be a good military historian, you need to have served, and there's something about those cultures that are otherwise impenetrable. And I was wondering if you sort of thought that argument held for history of science, or if you think it doesn't. 
uh, certainly not. I mean, certainly you don't have to be a star uh, you don't have to be a scientist, even though traditionally that was mainly the case, right? Like you would, I would say at least until the turn of uh, the millennium, right? Most of uh, the historians, specifically the historians of physics, had a physics. But actually, I would even say the opposite. I mean, what we really need is a lot of different kind of perspectives on education. So having a background in physics obviously gives you a very certain kind of background to think about science. But uh, what what is also the case for all these uh, people who come from science to uh, to be a historian of science you kind of have to unlearn as well right like you have to detrain because it gives you a certain perspective with which you are looking at things but it excludes other perspectives so I would say yes and no I would say helps you for certain things but it makes it more difficult in other perspectives right because you you have a certain training that uh, already gives you uh, a certain perspective on uh, on that discipline right? like I, I, I learned this uh, very much in the beginning also how much uh, being a scientist can actually be a hinder, right? Like uh, a lot of very, very good historians of science with no backgrounds from science, right? Like and bringing in other perspectives, which are which are actually great, right? So uh, absolutely not. If you, for example, if you want to engage with topics like the history of quantum mechanics, right? Like you might find it very abstract and very difficult if you don't have if you don't already have a background. Well, that is a very nuanced, very historian answer to that question. I appreciate that. Uh, it's not. It's not really diplomatic. It's really my. It's really my conviction. Right? Say in the old days, in the last millennium, right? Like we would have this division between uh, what was called an internalist and an externalist perspective in history of science, right? Like even though. Uh, everybody would agree that we are beyond these terms, right? And uh, we don't write specific internalist or externalist, at least most people don't write ex specifically internalist or externalist, but more a combination of both, right? And internalist approaches obviously uh, usually uh, usually carried by people who have a background. Right. Well, I think the last question um, before we talk about your current research is one that I ask all of our guests. And I think in a way, your article sort of answers it, but I'll ask it anyway in case there's anything else you want to add, which is this question about, have you learned anything from this research, whether it's a lens of analysis or the way to frame a particular research question that you think would be helpful for other historians of education to know? Um, and I know in a sense, the entire article is a set of you know, frames and analysis for other historians of education, um, but whether there's something not in the article or something that we haven't gotten to talk about uh, that you'd like to mention for other historians to think about. Where I'm coming from, which is uh, which is uh, from from the material culture, from the collections, uh, there there are a lot of school museums around, I guess, and there's a lot of historians of education who come from the school museums. But I find it very interesting to come through the material culture and practice angle. Uh, I don't know whether that is very helpful to historians of education. Uh, uh, I, I think what is very very uh, important is to move beyond institutions, and I think it's very interesting to look at education from a level of uh, epistemology, probably, and also looking at educational places. I mean, I already said this, right? Like a lot of historians of science look at educational places as places for reproduction and not for the production of new knowledge. But again, I, I think I, uh, with a lot of educational uh, communities, I'm talking to the converted to say that schools are not only, even though obviously they're places for reproduction, but they're also places for the creation of what, what I find uh, very interesting also specifically think about technological knowledge, right? Like that the kind of knowledge that is taught in school, right? Or is 
taught in, in technical education, even though it is scientific knowledge, it, it kind of has a different kind of epistemology uh, from the kind of knowledge uh, that is taught at universities, right? Like, and a lot of scientists, even though in, in a certain way they might know about that, right? Like, so my, my example would be, for example, the electrician, right? If you, if you have a scientist, a scientist or a physicist would always say, look, you have Maxwell's equations and they carry everything about what you need to know about electromagnetism, right? Like, obviously, if you train an electrician, you teach a lot of knowledge about uh, electromagnetism, which is uh, it's scientific knowledge, right? But you not teach that electric electrician the, the Maxwell equations, right? Like, you would teach, you would use, you would use other forms of representation of uh, electromagnetism, right? Which are much more useful if you want to uh, put up electrical circuits. So I think that that is uh, that is actually very, very interesting, right? Like also for me as a, as a historian of science, so that it's not like a linear, I mean, all these linear models of science and the public have to be deconstructed anyway, but also to see that actually the kind of knowledge that you teach to other communities, right? Like which are not necessarily scientific communities that also gets transformed, right? Like when it's kind of mobilized in other communities, in, in other sections of the public, right? Like obviously scientists are also part of the public, Right, like so, when it moves, also there, right, like through a formal training, that it that it really gets trust. Um, I think that's a that's a really helpful example for thinking about that. Um, so thank you. Uh, and I think our last question to wrap things up um, is: Can you talk a little bit about your current research? Is there anything you're working on right now that you're really excited about? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm working right now on on the exchanges of technical and uh, scientific knowledge, uh, uh, the trans transnational uh, exchange and circulation of uh, technical and scientific knowledge uh, after 1945 for for Europe, the United States, the Soviet Union. That's like the Cold War, right? But uh, for countries like India or African countries, uh, the decolonization period. So I'm looking into into these kind of regimes for which my own institution uh, IIT Madras is uh, is a very good example but you also have a, a lot of other projects the projects that I'm involved is is the modernization of fisheries in India specifically in southern India so there was a Indo-Norwegian collaboration in uh, moderni modernizing fishing and in introducing trawlers and in introducing freezing technologies and people have been looking into this but all these kind of uh, uh, transnational projects in in modernization in in uh, taking uh, specifically knowledge from Europe and North America to uh, to countries which are considered to be like the the global South. And um, even though I'm I'm I, I have to admit I'm not too uh, comfortable with these terms, <laughs> um, they all uh, they all contained uh, aspects of. Uh, education and training, right? Or training and education were actually central to moving these bits of knowledge and these practices. And they haven't really been studied so far, right? Like in these in these histories of uh, transnational exchange uh, aspects of uh, teaching and training have actually been underripped. So that that I find actually very interesting. And as I said, what happens to the knowledge? Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate you sharing a bit about the article and a bit about your research. Um, and just want to thank you again uh, for taking the time to share with us. Thank you very much for interviewing me.
Passing Notes is a production of the History of Education Society UK. Our executive producer is Heather Ellis, and this episode was written by Michael Donay and produced by me, Seda Ali. You can find a transcript of this episode, as well as more information about our events, publications and conferences at our website, historyofeducation.org.uk. 